Um, we are in Acts 22. Um, and what we're going to do is um, keep your finger there. We're going to read through it, but then we're also going to go back to 21 for context. Because if we really want to get the gist of what's being said, we kind of need to know what's going on. Well, let's actually do this. Let's go to 21 first. And I'm just going to jump in right at um, <clears throat> verse 27. It says this, and so we're going to be doing a considerable amount of reading to start with. Chapter 21, verse 27 says, Now when the seven days were almost ended, and I just, again, that is Paul taking that Nazarite vow. He has been approached in verse 20 and 21 by the leaders of the Jerusalem church. I want to remind you, that's the Christian church that says, it's a really great thing you're here. Paul, I love hearing about how people are getting saved and how the world's being transformed, but... There's this problem, and the problem is that there are people in our church that really love the law. And as a result of that, they've heard that you really kind of do this Gentile thing, and you're kind of making everybody Gentiles. You're not just preaching Jesus to Gentiles, but you're kind of making Jewish people back off on the law, and you're kind of telling people that Jesus really is all you need, and, and you know, that's really bothering them. And so as a result of that, let's kind of, let's appease them. And again, I want to remind you, and I'll try not to develop, I'm just giving us context for our verse that the moment you get on the defense in regards to your Christianity, you'll spend the rest of your life there. And I want to warn you, and I know this as an athlete, I don't know how many of you have ever played a sport, um, but if you've played a competitive team sport, you kind of know you're in the right place when the other team is really now focusing on their defense. Uh, because what that means is they're no longer concerned about scoring points. They're just busy trying not to lose any more of them. And, and what happens is, is, is at that point, in understand what they're trying to do is maintain so that they don't lose worse than they might. And, and I believe the church has done that to a lot of degree. We've been so busy defending, we've stopped being offensive. And people go, well, we can't possibly be offensive. We don't want to be offensive. We'll deal with it. It's offensive. The gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. You don't have to be offensive by your character or your personality. The message is offensive enough. And you could be nice and sugar sweet and all kinds of things. But man, Jesus said, blessed is he who is not offended by me. And, and, and in the end of it all, if you say, can I step in? And the world just keeps sticking their toes everywhere so you can't step somewhere. Sooner or later, if you're going to walk at all, you're going to have to step on something. And I'm not, again, I'm not encouraging you to be, let's start a new club, giant jerks for Jesus, you know, kooks for Christ. What I'm saying is, is that we can't back off on the offense or we'll spend the rest of ourself, our life defending. And, and, and you know, it's like, imagine if, if I met you and I said, hi, Dash, your name is Dash, nice to meet you. Now, now, before we go any farther in this relationship, I want you to know all the things you've heard about me are wrong. Imagine what he would think if that was the first thing I started with. I mean, I have evidence of things you may not even necessarily know about, but let me just show you before somebody gives you an accusation. I mean, you kind of get the idea. I wouldn't want to hang out with somebody like that because I kind of go, this is already messy before we started. But we do that with Jesus. 
And these guys have, and it's the church in Jerusalem that said, Paul, now I want to warn you, there's a bunch of guys, and look at, they're really serious about wearing ties, and they're really serious about the kind of haircut you have, and they're really serious about when you show up at church, and how you show up at church, and what it's going to look like, and what you do, and it has nothing to do with scripture, it has all to do at this point now with culture, and in that piece, so look at, you guys, you need to, there are these guys, these four guys, and they're getting... They're taking the Nazarite vow. Do it with them. Then they'll know that, that this is all lies. And, and really, you, you tell people to keep the law. The Lord, continue. just develop this now, please, in your name. Anoint me to do your work. And verse 27 then says, Now when those seven days, the days of that, that vow were over, that ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Man of Israel! <coughs> Help! This man who teaches all men everywhere against the people and the law in this place. And furthermore, he's brought Greeks into the temple and defiled the holy place. They have previously seen Trophimus of the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they had supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And the whole city was disturbed. And the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Paul has been kicked out, and the temple has gone into lockdown. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison. Now I want you to recognize there is a period of time from where people are trying to kill Paul and news is going to get to the commander. The commander is going to have to grab his troop Get down there to save Paul. Now, I don't know about you, but one second is way too long for someone to try to kill me before help shows up. How about you? I remind you, Paul had been warned. He just said that chains and tribulation await him. That's what he knew. The Holy Spirit had testified in at least 14 different cities en route of the 800-mile journey from Philippi down to where he's at now. That that chains and tribulation await him. And I wonder if I were Paul, if I thought it's bound to be the Gentiles, the Roman army, it's bound to be. But he's, strangely enough, he is being rescued by his own target audience that God has ordained. I don't know if you recognize that. God, God had called, Gaul, God had ca- called Paul to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. In every place where Paul preaches to the Jewish people, it seems like they want to kill him. Peter, by the way, Paul, it will actually be very clear that Paul makes, that he believes that Peter's called to the Jewish people. But every time Paul seems to sneeze, cough, or rub his belly, five Gentiles get saved. And you know, have you ever watched anyone like this? It's like, you know, they have this real heart for a certain group of people and God is calling them to another and they know that, but somehow they still are really trying to, to bend and force the will of God to another area. And, and I understand that. I mean, if, if I could have my way, I'd want to see every person in London saved. And, and, but the bottom line is, even if every person in London gave their life to Christ, the majority of them wouldn't go to this church because we'd be funky for most people. I think we were great in Camden. But there are going to be some people that really want it to be something more liturgical. Stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. Everything's done in a moment and you're out in 40 minutes. And there are great churches for that. As a matter of fact, one meets right before us on Sunday mornings. We would send someone there if that was what they wanted. 
If there are some that they really need to be able to hang and sweat and yell and have an emotional experience and there needs to be something more theatrical and demonstrative. And the good news is there are other churches for that. And praise God there are because to be honest, if you try that here, it's really going to be kind of weird. And so there are places for that and praise the Lord. And the reason I say that is, is that it's just nice to be able to just do what the Lord calls you to and then let him deal with the rest. And he's just got, but he has such a broken heart for the Jewish people that he'd say, he actually says to the Romans, I would even almost wish myself accursed. Do you realize what that means? That means, as Paul says, I would almost even want to go to hell just to see the Jewish people saved. What an amazing statement to make. Now, the almost, that could be a very big almost. I'm okay with that. But I'd like you to consider the fact that if Paul ever had an opportunity to preach to the Jewish people, this one's it. And the reason is, all of the able-bodied Jewish men have assembled in one place for the Feast of Pentecost, which means that every one of them would be there in the temple for this sacred convocation from which Paul is about to, I mean, which means there are no shortage of guys that are there to beat you to death, is what it means. And now what it says here, notice with me, verse 31. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison. And all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He, that's the commander, who will find later his name is Luscious. What a great name. Anyways. (coughs) He took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when he saw the commander of the soldiers, I'm sorry, when they, that's the people that are trying to kill Paul, saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Now, what condition are you in at this moment? Now, one thing's for sure. One thing we know about Paul is he's been beat on. He's in bad shape. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a gang mauling before. You don't even want to watch it on YouTube. It's something that that will change you. If you've ever watched a bunch of people team up on one individual and start beating them, it's one of the most disturbing unsettling, it's like, and you can't unsee it. I mean, it's just something that really leaves an indelible mark on you. And and, and that's just you watching it. Imagine the person receiving it. Talk about indelible marks. And and so the commander shows up. They see him, so they stop beating him because I want to remind you, since 7 AD, there has been no legal right for the Jewish people to kill. They've They've been, Caponius in 7 AD, who was the governor of the area of Judea, removed the right of capital punishment. In, in essence, that was the Jewish people seeing the, the uh, Genesis 39 text where it says the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh or the Messiah comes. That's the same year, by the way, when Jesus presents himself in the temple at 12. Well, with all of that said, they've not legally been able to kill anyone. They've already killed Stephen. We already know about that. Um, James has been murdered <coughs> Excuse me, as well. But in this now, they see this and they recognize when the Romans come down, it's like you are doing something illegal as far as the Romans are concerned. So they stopped beating him. The commander came near, verse 33, and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains, by the way, just as it had been promised, it prophesied. And he asked them who he was and what he had done. Now some of the multitude cried one thing and some another. Doesn't that sound like those of you who are around or have read through the text in regards to 19 where there was the riot in Ephesus? Interesting, because the guys who said this guy's brought a Gentile in are from that area. By the way, as is Trophimus, the guy that they had seen Paul in the, in the city with. So anyways, <coughs> the commander's rescuing him. He's got, a, he's got soldiers and he's pulling Paul away from everyone. And, and, he, and he looks at them and he says, what, is he, what has he done? What, why are you doing this? 
and they're screaming everything. He doesn't recycle. He hates dolphins. He harps, he, you know, you know he, pun, he beats harp seals, you know. Well, he shops at Tesco instead of Caesar. And all the things they're saying. He eats pork. He doesn't wear a yarmulke. And it's enough that the guy looks and he goes, oh, this is worse than I thought. It isn't like, it, it, you would imagine if he thought everyone was beating you to death, that at least everyone would have at least a common reason. There isn't. No. With that it says, he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, so he commanded him to be taken to the barracks. When he reached the stairs, that's Paul, by the way, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. So at this point, the mob is now so taken over by it, they don't even care of the fact that, but the Romans, by the way, had a right to just stab you. They had a right to actually just kill you, and you didn't even care. You were so busy trying to kill this guy that you didn't care whether you got killed in the process. And the multitude followed after him, crying out, Away with him! And just as Paul was to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, Now, go ahead and flash that up if you would, Charlene, so that we can at least get this. Now again, this is our temple precinct. As this is our temple precinct, this is the temple proper. Now, this is, there's, there are several gates here, um, and walls, of course. This allows, this is the court of the women, so that's the, and then there's the court of Israel, and then there's the course, the court beyond that, and of course the priests are able to do their sacrifices. And then in here, and now all of these four corners, there are places for teachers. There's a place, by the way, for, for people who've taken a vow, like for instance the Nazarite vow, and there's places to store things like wood for the sacrifice and salt. Now, with all of that, this area here in the mass is the area called the court of the Gentiles. And again, I remind you, go ahead and flash to that other one, please. Thank you. That wall that separates that here, again, that is the wall that actually a Gentile is able to go to this point, and then just beyond this, he would actually, and it, it, it says there, in written in Greek, look, if you step past this, you only have yourself to blame, this is a loose paraphrase, you only have yourself to blame for us killing you. And I kind of wonder if, at this point, because people are yelling all of these things, I wonder if some people just thought all they heard was Gentile and temple, and they thought, there's a Gentile, and they're trying to kill Paul, assuming maybe he's a Gentile that's gotten past this place. And they're like, well, you deserve it, man. And, and again, here's the strange thing. And please hear me on this. These people genuinely believe they are serving God by trying to kill him. And isn't that actually what we had been warned by Jesus? Jesus had said there will come a time, by the way, when people who actually seek to kill you are genuinely, genuinely believing that they're doing God a service. Well... <clears throat> and that's that, uh, I'm not a pessimist I'm actually quite the optimist but I would say that that's actually going to probably get worse now so Paul says may I speak to you now Paul actually is turning at this point and he's speaking Greek now I want you to recognize the average Hebrew man spoke Aramaic which it was if you will kind of like the abonics of Hebrew I mean to speak real classic Hebrew well, let me just say it this way. It would be kind of like speaking American versus English, if that makes any sense. We have our own kind of way of really kind of making it a little bit different of a language. And, of course, it's very much varied from the English. And, 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 and the reason I say that, now Paul turns around and he speaks in, in Greek to the commander, which, by the way, he would speak at least Greek and Latin. And he says, may I speak with you for a moment? And he says, well, can you speak Greek? Now, notice what this commander says. I remind you, he's responsible for a thousand soldiers. And it says, are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred the rebellion and led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? Now, there had been such a man who led these people into the wilderness with the idea saying that there was going to be a day when a giant earthquake was going to happen, God was going to kill all the Romans, and they were going to take over, you know, Jerusalem to actually take care of the end of the world. 
They were steered into the wilderness, and the Romans just killed them. And, and, but the leaders seemed to have escaped. Now, the most amazing thing, I want to remind you, Paul is in, where is he? Where is he at this moment? He's in the temple, and he's being carried out, ultimately, to the Antonio Fortress. And can you find that on there? That's this area here. Now, the Antonio Fortress is where the Roman soldiers would be to overlook everything that takes place in the courtyard. It's, by the way, where the soldiers would be dispatched from, and there's a ramp heading up there where the soldiers could be taken down and in, in mass. And that was the idea. Now, here's the strange beat. Paul is in the temple precinct, and as he's in the temple precinct, someone screams, I'm not a gentle, I'm not a temple, blah, 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 blah. And people just try to kill the guy. And as that's the case, now this Roman soldier, this commander, who's, by the way, quite educated, you would imagine, in these things, looks at Paul and doesn't even think he's Jewish. No wonder why people started trying to beat him. They, I mean, and you no wonder how long Paul had been out in the secular, or I should say, out in the non-Jewish world to not look so Jewish. But then I remind you, he had shaved himself and done a lot of other things that weren't typically Jewish as part of the Nazarite vow. Now, with all of that said, and I can't help but think of Joseph, those who are familiar with the book of Genesis, how when his brothers come after a great period of years, granted, he's considerably older, they don't assume he's their brother. He looks as, as Egyptian as anything. And it's interesting because that's even what this guy calls Paul. He's like, aren't you that Egyptian guy, that crazy cult leader, that nut? Now with that in mind, verse 39, it says, Paul says, I'm a Jew from Tarshish in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had been given him permission, Paul stood at the stairs and motioned, to him with the hand, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in a Hebrew language, saying, now, this is just to kind of create an environment. Let's try something for a moment. You ready? This is one of those moments where we're going to do some kind of play. So here's the idea. I'm just going to, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to look any more haggardly than I am. But when I, when, I, when I point to you guys, I want you to just start screaming, screaming, away with him, kill him, he deserves to die, that kind of thing. And then I'm going to lift up my hands like this, and I want you guys all to get quiet, because I want you to see how radical that kind of experience is for a moment. And then I want you to multiply by, I don't know, like a million, because there's about two million people there, well, somewhere between 200,000 and two million, arguably somewhere in between there. So you guys ready for this? So this is, and you're like, I didn't know that we do this kind of stuff at church. Well, here's one of those moments. Ready? And, and, and I wonder if the reverend who's um, actually in his, probably his study somewhere, if he hears this, what he thinks. Okay. So think of what your line is. You have a moment to think of your line. Away with him, kill him. You could scream it in your own language. And in other words, if you've, got, if you've got another native tongue, that could be fun too. Because by the way, people would be doing that. I remind you, everyone from all these different places from the diaspora have come too. So are you ready? Get your... Get, Get yourself ready. Here we go. Ready? And... Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. That was... Are you tickling, Paul? Are you tickling him? Is that what you... I, I like the pounding, but you, 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 gotta, you got more. I know you got more. I, I mean, look, I know some of you. You all got more. Come on now. This is your opportunity here. Yo, you kill him. Scream. Now, think about this. You're, you, you, you're, you're spazzing out here. This isn't an opportunity for you to be like, oh my goodness, I think we should probably, oh, what a, oh, what a, oh, we should probably do something. No, scream it. Think American. Think, okay, just think you're in Wembley Stadium. What do you, yeah. That's a, come on, come on. Look at how you guys wore out. 
we just don't have that in us. We just don't have that kind of, but we do. If a guy kicks a little ball into a net, he goes, and he does it like for like an hour. And everyone's screaming the whole time for something, and if you'll pardon me for saying, that will have no bearing on your life unless you're drunk and you get an accident on the way home or you beat somebody. Now, for the most part, with all due respect, people will scream that. Now, here's the point. Now, I'm going to try one more time, and don't worry, I'm not going to do it more after this, and I'll try to get it quick. Ready? I want you guys to come on now. Ready? And go! Now, imagine that times 200,000. Or imagine that the whole idea of it is you have a mass, a mass of people larger than the Reading Festival, larger than Glastonbury, larger than these crazy places. And he raises his hands to give a defense. Now, I remind you, again, you start with a defense, you'll spend the rest of your life defending yourself. But he raises his hands and he begins to speak to them in Hebrew. Now, <coughs> believe it or not, we're actually at our chapter. Now, listen. Paul is going to make clear to us where he was raised. And he was raised by the most astute and erudite of all Hebrew teachers. And the reason I say that is, what kind of Hebrew do you think Paul spoke? I would imagine as pure a Hebrew has, as anyone has ever heard. I mean, it's as if somebody with the most perfect of British manner of speech, manner of speech spoke Shakespeare. It wasn't like he was Georgie. It wasn't like, with all due respect, he was Irish or Scottish or he was from the East End. He was someone that spoke with perfect. And, and the reason I say that is, is as much as a person could possibly speak something that the vast mass of people out there could not speak as, this man begins to speak to them in the most perfect of Hebrews and he says this in Acts 22.1. Brothers and fathers, Hear my defense before you now. And the word defense, by the way, for what it's worth, is the term in the Greek, apologia. It's the term where we get apologetics and apology from. Now, when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. And for that many people, what a miracle. And then he said, I'm a Jew. I'm indeed a Jew. So let's, first of all, get out of the... Let's Clear up the fact I'm no Gentile. Born in Tarshish of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous toward God as you are today. Now, please hear me. Paul's quick at giving defense. In 9 in Jerusalem, chapter 13 in Antioch, the city of Antioch, 13 in Thessalonica, Athens, he philosophizes. In 18 in Corinth, chapter 19, he reasons and persuades in Ephesus. And now I want to remind you, it's roughly 50 AD. That's 16 years since Paul has been saved. And in 16 years, he's defended, he's argued, he's reasoned. And now, 16 years after, the beginning of when he first found Christ, how has he grown in his presentation of Jesus? Interesting. Now he has the one audience he has sought his whole life over, all collectively. And Paul does not go with arguing. Paul does not go with archaeological evidence. Paul does not go with logic. Paul does not go with classic Hebrew statements in some manner or another, euphemisms and, and parables and so forth. Paul does, and please hear me, please hear me, Paul gives his testimony. After 16 years, 
of being more than likely the most brilliant of students, with all of the accolades, all of the academics, all of the things that could make you say, wow, Paul goes right to the testimony. Now, strange, because if there was a guy that could argue, if there was a guy that could logic, if there was a guy that could reason, if there was a guy that could debate, this would be your big gun. But in front of an audience now, Paul is going to actually give you the one thing that every one of you should have in your bandolero as your number one gun. And that's your testimony. Now please listen. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, here's the basic testimony. You ready? Here's the format. I was a rotten, nasty person in one manner or another that needed Jesus. I got saved and now I'm not. The rest is the details you get to add of who you are. But we all have that in common. Now, some people, let's be honest, their testimony might appear to be a little bit more vivid, crazy, whatever the case is. The changes maybe seem more radical. But let me tell you, if you're one of those kind of people that feel you don't have a good testimony because you weren't kicking nuns, slapping puppies, running over innocent children on the streets, trying to blow yourself up, whatever the case is, and you feel like I was generally a decent person, and, and, and at least in the eyes of everyone else, but I was still empty and I still needed Jesus and I gave my life to Jesus and he transformed me. Well, if you think that that testimony isn't important to you, I can understand why the enemy has worked so hard at getting you to believe that. You know why? Because the majority of the people out there, well, let me say it this way. If I shared my testimony with the majority of the people out there, and I often do, they'll say, well, yeah, yeah, Jesus is very nice. He's good for people like you for those losers that kind of are crazy and have a rough life and he likes those kind of, you know, he has a soft spot for those kind of people. But I'm basically a good person. The majority of people that I'm out there sharing with, that's their answer. But I'm basically a good person. Do you realize those of you who feel like you have no testimony have the most important testimony because your testimony shatters theirs. You blow their menagerie out. You break their mirror because what they say is, I'm basically a good person. And you go, so was I. Now, they can't say that to me. They say, we are basically a good person. I'm like, no, I won't lie to you. I was not a basically a good person. And some of you, and, and, and people, and we kind of highlight that because what it does is it seems to show radical change and what Jesus can do in a human life. But please, please, please hear me. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and that we don't love our lives to death. That's what Romans 12:11 said. Don't you for a moment ever disqualify your testimony. Now, can I tell you something? A little personal, we'll get into this so that you can get a little bit of where he's coming from here. My grandfather was a bus driver for Chicago Transit Authority, CTA. He was a hard-headed, stubborn guy Obviously, I didn't inherit that. Just kidding. And he was approached by the mafioso in Chicago who didn't ask him, but told him that he was going to run money underneath his public bus from one side of Chicago to the other. He promptly refused. As he promptly refused, they promptly went into action. And one day... When my grandmother and grandfather were walking up, they lived up a flight of steps on a second story flat. My grandfather had made it up the steps. My grandmother was at the bottom of the steps. Two gentlemen were there, I'm using the term loosely, and pushed them down the flight of steps. 
cracking his skull open, his brains literally splattered all over my grandmother's shoes. These men walked down, stirred her straight in the face, and said, You didn't see nothing, and walked out. Those men were never prosecuted because my grandmother lived in such fear that if she testified, she would receive something from those men. And she had already seen what they could do. Because of her fear, she kept from testifying. And because she did not testify, justice has been misserved. Are you with me on that? But the most important trial in the history of mankind sits upon human hearts every day. And by God's grace, he is fighting to keep those people at a hung jury to not make the conclusion yet so that you can testify. And what they're looking for is evidence. And I can just tell you, if the enemy, the murderer, can keep you from testifying, there will be a mistrial in the hearts of human beings because you won't do what God called you to. Does that make sense? Now, if you are brought up to testify, you are called what? What's the term of a person who's called up to testify? A witness. That's your noun. That's your title. You are a witness. And if you're brought up to testify, the opposing attorney, the two most common things that they will do, at least in America, and you can tell me whether that's different here, is to disqualify the individual by one of two means. One is that they actually were not personally related to the information, or the second is that they weren't capable of actually properly interpreting it. In other words, you said, well, I heard a noise in the other room. Obviously, there must have been. And they're like, but did you see anything? No, I didn't see anything. Well, then how could you say that that noise could have been, or could have been that, but it's not conclusive? They're trying to make it so that it was hearsay. Beloved, please hear me when the human beings that are out there are looking to find out whether Jesus is real, whether he still changes lives, and whether he still loves people, they're looking at you, and they would expect reasonably, they would expect you to be able to testify. Does that make sense? And if they expect you to be able to testify, and you tell people you're a Christian and Jesus changes lives, then it would be logical for them to say to you, how did he change yours? And if you say, well, my great uncle or my great aunt Irma had this situation back in World War II where she was hiding and she couldn't eat for days and all of a sudden a bag of potatoes came through the window. What a glorious thing, how God provides. And you think, well, that's really great. Were you there? No. Well, then that's a really neat story. And it could be true or it might not be true. But in the end of it all, that's not something you can testify of. Does that make sense? That's something you can say you heard, but that's again called hearsay. My question to you is, if Jesus is real, how? How has he touched your life? How has he changed you? How has he affected you? How have you encountered him? Because if you have nothing to answer there, you might want to do a little bit of soul searching. If you think, well, I was basically a really neat person and now I'm a little nicer, I really think you need to be a little more honest about yourself. 
And I guarantee you that your honesty is going to change the jury when you actually tell them what it is. Now, I don't know if you've ever really thought about it, but Paul's about to give his testimony. Now, granted, we'd say, well, that's a pretty radical testimony. He's backing that Jesus changes losers. Well, yeah, and Paul would say, matter of fact, he would actually say he was the biggest of sinners, the chief arche in the Greek. But he changes every, every loser, doesn't he? And we're all deserving of death. And the reason I say that, beloved, is that God really wants you to have a testimony. And so this is my challenge. And I'm going to give you homework. Ha, 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 deal with it. Find somebody that's saved. Start with that. That should be the easiest. Someone you live with, someone you work with. If you have anyone at all, if not, grab someone from the church, invite them out for tea or coffee. And if worse comes to worse and you can't find anyone, I'll, I'll go out and grab some tea with you. And just tell me this. This was the kind of person, this is why I needed Jesus before, who I was before. This is how I met him. And this is what he's done since. But don't tell me about great-great-grandma unless somehow it's unless she's the one who told you. Unless that's, but give me something concrete. Does that make sense? You should be the easiest audience because someone should be able to just go, praise the Lord. You should, and by the way, does it ever get old hearing how Jesus changes lives? I mean, we encourage each other when that stuff gets said. Man, if you're married, tell your wife. If you're married, tell your husband. If you're married, tell your kids. Tell your roommates. But sit down and make it a, make it a date, man. Just make it something precious. Where Because the first time you share it, you'd feel like it's a little rough around the edges, but sooner or later, you're like, wow, wait a minute, wow. And you start to realize, every time I share my testimony, I fall in love with the Lord all over again because I'm reminded of how huge His love is for me. And then just... Ask the Lord to keep that on the top of your heart so that when someone asks, well, what are you about? Be ready with that. And you can do that in two minutes. Well, back in our text. In Acts 22.1, remember, he says, now look at here, my defense before you, my apology, my apologia. He spoke to them in perfect Hebrew when they start to listen. Now, you guys ready to try that homework, by the way? May God do something radical with that. Now, he says, verse 3, again, I'm a Jew. First of all, you need to realize that. Of Tarshish or Cilicia, brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, let me, let me, let me clarify a little bit of that. Because this is where it kind of really hits hard for this populace, and as well as ours. In about 110 BC, there was a man born named Hillel. Hello, by the way, is the Hebrew word for praise. Hello, by the way, was considered by the people, the new Moses. I kid you not. He was one of the people foundational in helping to congregate the information to create the Mishnah and the Talmud, which in essence is the collection of verbal traditions of the Jewish people. In essence, it's kind of their New Testament, though they won't tell you that. And it's like, you know, this is how you keep the Sabbath. This is how you make sure of these laws and these particular things. And it was basically like the commentaries that are all agreed and so so forth. And so he was really big on it. But listen, Halal was a really kind individual. Uh, according to history, and I, and I don't know how much of this is true, but I do know that at least the, the concepts of it, he lived to be 120. As a matter of fact, he was born in Babylon, lived the first 40 years there, spent the next 40 years in study, at least according to the Mishnah, and then died at 120, which means he spent 40 years leading the people as the president of the Sanhedrin. Now, consider that for a moment. Now, as he was the case, he was, listen, he was really big on women's rights. He was the first one to tell people, listen, if a woman's going to get divorced, she should have rights in it. And he was a big proponent on, by the way, loving the Gentile to be a light to them, as the scripture had said. 
And because of that, he was loved by the people, as you would expect. If you go to Israel to this day, it's, it's like we have Starbucks here. There isn't a Starbucks there. There was one in a cup bomb. But what they do have is a Cafe Hillel. That's one of the big ones because people still adulate that man. Now, the vice president of the Sanhedrin at that time rose up, and his particular name was Shammai, and Shammai was the carbon opposite. Shammai was the kind of guy, by the way, that <coughs> when a man asked to convert to Judaism, he looked at him and kicked him out of the building. He just, he, and his idea was, fight the man, fight Rome. His idea was, if, when they asked him, what was the purpose then of a Gentile, a goyim is the term, by the way, of the, multi, the, the, the plural of, of, of uh, Gentile people, goyim. He said they were there because hell needs fuel. That was Shammai's attitude. He hated anyone that wasn't Jewish. Now, understand, you've got Hillel, that's sort of this warm, fuzzy, almost Santa Claus kind of character, and then you've got Shammai, who was kind of the rough and tumble, hate the, everyone that isn't, and his idea was, we want purity among, we want purity among the Jewish people, purity among the Jewish people. Well, when Hillel dies in 30 AD, Shammai then takes over as the president of the... Uh, <coughs> Excuse me. He takes over as the president of the Sanhedrin. And when he does, he passes at that point now 18 laws. And according to tradition, <coughs> excuse me, they said that when one of those laws was passed, it was as bad as the golden calf in the eyes of the people. It was as grievous. And his basic attitude was we need to separate from the Gentile as much as possible. That was his attitude. And so when he sort of took over then, and, and by the way, he will die, and as he dies, somebody else takes over his position, which would be expected. By the way, he doesn't even allow a VP. When he's president of the Sanhedrin, he does not even allow a vice president to be there. He's just big and large and in charge. So here's kind of the way it works. And I should say this. Hillel dies in about 10 AD. That's when Shammai takes over. From 10 to 30 AD, he does. But now listen, Shammai... Is he's hated by the people, but he has quite an influence on them. Because Rome already is kind of rough anyways. So who replaces then Shammai at Shammai's death? Hillel's grandson. And Hillel's grandson was named the reward of God, which his name is Gamaliel. So this man we know as Gamaliel was the grandson of what people called the second Moses. He was loved. He was, he was revered. He was even worshipped by some people. And he was the one in the book of Acts that he's the one who said, by the way, you might want to really rethink about these guys, these Christians, because if they really are serving God, you're fighting God by trying to kill them. Because of that statement, by the way, some actually believe that... <coughs> excuse me, that he'd become a Christian. I can't guarantee you that, but when I get in heaven, I'll look for him. Now, this statement is made, by the way, though, in the Mishnah, it says this, Since Rabban Gamaliel, the elder, died, there has been no reverence to the law. Purity or piety has died out at the same time. Sota 1518, by the way. Now, that whole testimony, by the way, of this kicking out the Gentile that Shammai did, by the way, that's in Shabbat 31a. But now listen in this. Because in this, in the Mishnah, it actually says that there was one specific student, this is in Shabbat 30b, there was one specific student that displayed or possessed an impudence, impudence, that's not the word, impudence, in other words, he was really gifted at learning. And many people believe that that was Paul. 
Gamaliel had at least one student that, according to tradition, recorded in the Mishnah, said that he was a really, really super gifted student. Now, here's the irony. Well, first of all, in the eyes of the general Jewish people, there was never a greater Jewish man living at that time than Gamaliel. They said that when he died, the glory of the Torah died with him. So for Paul to say he was his personal student, imagine what that would be to people who are trying to kill him because they're saying that he's basically some kind of Gentile freak. He was raised at the feet of Gamaliel. There could be no greater cred than that in regards to his education. But it's more than that. He was also raised in Jerusalem. Now, this happens here in London as well, but where we lived in the central coast of California, people saved up their whole life to come and visit for a week. But, and I'm going to pick on Landon for a second here, um, three hours away from us was the valley. And the valley was a group of guys that normally drove really big, tired trucks with giant belt buckles who wore cowboy hats and the whole bit. And they would come several times a year, usually in the summer. And it was funny because when they would come, you could identify them because basically our, our uh, beach was either filled with these guys from the valley or, or Germans for whatever reason. And you could always tell the difference because the Germans wore tiny red Speedos and their body was just as red from the lack of sun, but we, they got it anyways. But the, the guys that were from the valley, they showed up, they brought their barbecues and the whole bit. And they, and, and, but there were these kids and they were like, punks. They were like, hey man, don't mess with me, man. I'm from like Bakersfield. Which I'm like, shut up. You don't even, you don't even talk like that. You know, I don't even know how you get that. But they would kind of come and they'd talk about their territory. And you know, man, this is my block, man, because I come here twice a, twice a year, man. This is my block. And then, then they'd say, well, where are you from? And you, you wait for that moment, because the moment they do, you say, well, I'm from here. And that shuts the whole thing down. Because you you're a local, and because you're a local, you've got some street cred. Does that make sense? This isn't your block, because in a week you're going to leave, it's still going to be my block. That was kind of the idea. Here, you've got the people who, you know, come in, they kind of take their pictures, and you know it. They're, they're beelining to Big Ben, they're beelining to Westminster Abbey, and so forth. And after a while, they tend to think of it as their own. And then they ask, well, where are you from? And you're like, I'm from here. And you're like, oh, and you kind of, you know, you get that idea. Wow, that's, that's kind of important to some people. Well, imagine being a Jewish person, and they ask, well, Paul, where are you from? Well, I was born in Cilicia, by the way, which is a very important city for the Romans. But from the time I was a little boy, I was raised. This is my, this is my turf. I'm a local. And for the hundreds of thousands of people who have come in from the rest of the world to come to Jerusalem to save up so they could come and visit, that's street cred. In other words, what Paul is saying is you couldn't find a more Jewish guy than Paul to start with. Paul didn't start off while I was all kind of a Jewish person. We lived in a convoluted home. Mom was Jewish. Dad wasn't. You know, so we watched football. But then we also kind of went to temple. I mean, it wasn't like that. He was like, man, look at I was raised by the greatest teacher of the day. I was in this city that would be the greatest city. And I was strict. Now, here's the irony. That if Hillel was so kind and Gamaliel was so kind, he seemed to be more like Shammai. You know what I'm saying? Because it seemed like he hated the Gentile. By the way, doesn't that sound like where the culture is here in Jerusalem as far as everyone else, as well as the church that was there? Verse 4. I prosecuted this way, and by the way, again, that was the name of Christianity before Acts 11.26, binding and delivering into prison both men and women. And also the high priest bears me witness and all the counsel of the elders from whom I have received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring the chains even those who were in, to Jerusalem to be punished. 
And now what happened is I journeyed and came near Damascus about noon. Suddenly a great light shone around, around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, well, well who are you, Lord? And he said to me, well, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Now listen, what Paul says is, look at, I know what it's like to be full on, and please, please hear me. In Paul's testimony, listen to the terms we would have used. Ultra-Orthodox, radical, super-religious. That's what we would have called this guy. We would have called him full-on. And he was a guy, listen, 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 that so believed his doctrine that if you disagreed with him, he wanted to kill you. Why do I even bring that up? Because there is a whole generation of people living in London today that people are afraid to share Jesus with because they're like, how in the world will they ever receive Jesus? And they're radical. And they, if you disagree with their doctrine, they'll kill you or they'll want it to kill you. And they'll say, that's just Sharia law. And they're looking and you say, well, could God possibly transform a Muslim? You're sitting among them, people who used to be. Could God possibly transform a person who was full-on ultra-Orthodox? Some of them join us on Sundays. And the reason I say that is, don't ever buy the lie of the enemy that says, don't worry about those people, they're impossible. Is anything impossible with God? Do you realize that the one reason that some people haven't given their life to Christ is because they don't even know it's a choice? And you're like, well, I might die from it. Well, that's funny, because the moment you gave your life to Christ, you were supposed to have died then. And if you want to love your life, you're going to lose it. Love Christ enough to love people, and love people enough to share the truth. Because there are some people out there that it's like, look at, you're like, well, that person's impossible. Well, then I tell you what, do it then. Go for the impossible. So you have, you can go, wow. We did this not that long ago here. I said, I asked you to write a list of three people that you thought were impossible for, or that were the farthest from God getting saved. Some of those people are actually actively in ministry right now. So don't tell me what God does or doesn't do. God loves the impossible. You're aware of that. So give it to him and see what he does. And this man, by the way, if we all took a vote and we were all in those days... Paul would be at the top of every one of our lists. Who would it be today? Think of the radical leader of Hamas or Hezbollah, the radical leader of, and you put what you want to put there, Hussein's armies, Ahmadinejad's armies, Ahmadinejad. What about him? In the end of it all, there are some pretty radical people out there that were part of those terrorist groups. There's one guy, that, by the way, who gives his testimony about how he got shared with by a crazy American who shared with him right in front of Jaffa Gate. And he now is out there sharing Jesus with people. So don't tell me that God doesn't save and he won't save the hardest case. Paul would say, this guy would say, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus died to save sinners of whom I am chief, or the worst, arche in the Greek. But for that reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display his unlimited patience 
as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. In other words, what Paul would do, if Paul looked at you in the face and you said, I don't know about those people, go to Tower Hamlets, are you nuts? Walk over through Kentish Town, are you serious? Go through Hackney, come on, be real. He would say, look it, God saved me, so you couldn't possibly say God wouldn't save you, so you couldn't possibly say God wouldn't save them. If you've ever coached, you know what this is like when you look at a team that you know is about to go out and take the field or the court, and they look and go, they're bigger, they're scarier, we've lost. And it's like, look, you haven't even played the game yet. Get out there like you're going to win this. And be pleasantly surprised. Let me remind you, you are following the undefeated heavyweight champion of the universe. So look at I persecuted people. I persecuted them to death. Paul isn't proud of this. He's not nonchalant. In his mind, as he closes his eyes, I wonder how many times he sees the face of women that had been made widows because of the, how he killed her husband, how he had ripped away children from their mothers to have them arrested. And he looks at all of that and he goes, look at I understand what it's like for you to be that zealous. In Romans, Paul says they have a zeal. It's just not according to knowledge. Just because someone says they're spiritual or they're just kind of romantic or passionate about something doesn't mean that they're right. And if that were the case, Hitler would have been a great guy. In the end of it all, he says, look, there needs to be some knowledge behind that passion. Otherwise, what you got is something crazy. He goes, I know what it's like to have that kind of passion, but to have it in the wrong place. You can ask the high priest. I would travel 130, oh, 200 kilometers just to go to a place, just to make sure that I could drive everybody out of this thing. I was willing to go anywhere to kill these people that I'm now a part of. Verse 9. Those who were with me indeed saw the light as Jesus encounters Paul, and Paul encounters him, and were afraid, but they didn't hear the voice of him who spoke with me. Oh, this is a great one. Because you'll say, no, wait a minute, Pastor Anthony. I know that in Acts 9-7, it says that when the men journeyed, it says that they heard a voice. And if they heard a voice, why does it say here that they didn't hear the voice? Aha, the Bible's false. No, 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 no. Be actual, reasonable. Let it be intelligent when we approach the text. In chapter 9, God is giving us the narrative. Paul's not giving us testimony. God is giving the narrative. And in God's narrative, he says, those people heard the voice. They heard the sound. Here Paul says, well, those guys that were with me, they didn't hear it. Well, they heard a sound, maybe, but they didn't hear the voice. And, and the reason I say that is, if God spoke personally to every person out there on the street right now, how many of them would even tell us do you know what I'm saying? And you remember, all of the people Paul were with were his commandos. These were the guys he was going in to kill the Christians in Damascus. And Paul encounters Jesus. And could you see Paul looking around going, did you guys hear that? And I'm going, no, no, I, I, I didn't. Paul's, and so Paul's giving testimony. He's like, look it, in the end of it all, this thing must have just been for me because I was the only one who heard it as far as I know. Verse 10, he says, so I said, well, well who, who are you? He said, well, I'm Jesus. That's the two most important questions you'll ever ask God. Number one is, who are you? And two, what do you want me to do? And I guarantee you, if you're looking for God, he'll reveal himself through his son, Jesus. I guarantee you. But if he does, then you have to be willing to ask the second question, which is, well, what do you want me to do? The Lord said, well, then go to Damascus. Arise and go to Damascus. There you will be told the things which are appointed you to do. Since I couldn't see because of the glory, and I understand why Paul would say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.16, God dwells in an approachable light. I couldn't see because of the glory of that light. Now, this is not, this is not London, and the reason I say that is when, when it outshone the noonday sun, here that's really not a real 
I mean, you can do that probably with a good torch. In the Middle East, for it to outshine the new day sun, we're talking about something extremely bright. And he says, I couldn't see because of the glory of that, that light. So I had to be led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came to Damascus. There was a certain guy named Ananias. Look at it with me. Verse 12. A devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there. And he came to me, and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same time, <coughs> I looked up at him. <coughs> and then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one, hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be a witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple, that I was in a trance. And I saw him, that must be, that's Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was standing consenting to his death, guarding his clothes and those that were willing. And then he said, well, depart. I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they listened to him until that word. And at this word, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such, this, such a fellow from the earth. He is not fit to live. And they cried out, tore their clothes and threw dust in the air. Now please hear me. These, this whole audience was silent and was okay with Paul being a radical, being ultra-Orthodox. They were okay with him killing those who disagreed with his doctrine. They were okay with him traveling over 200 kilometers to go and do so. They were okay with Jesus being called Lord. They were okay with Paul encountering a living Jesus. They were okay with Paul, listen, with Jesus being overtly glorious. With Paul then being miraculously healed. With Jesus being called the Just One. They were okay with Jesus foretelling him that their audience, that these people wouldn't listen to him. They were okay with Jesus, I'm sorry, with Paul being a party to Stephen's death. They were even okay with Stephen being called your martyr. And imagine, all of this they were okay with. They were okay with this guy being full-on mental about his religion. But the moment he said that Jesus loves you, they went crazy. Is that not sad? And you're in East Jerusalem. And you tell them there that God loves the Jew. And you're in parts of Bet Shemesh. And you tell some of those ultra-Orthodox God loves the Palestinian or the Arab or the Egyptian. And they're like, well, I'll agree with you until that point. And it's like Shammai has raised up again. But here's the craziest part, friends. Paul is not standing alone. He is standing next to a Roman soldier, a commander, who had to purchase his citizenship. And can you imagine being that Roman soldier and him asking, what did you say to make them so crazy? And to say to, as Paul, to say to him, look him straight in the face and say, I said that God loves you too. How rough would that be for the soldier? For the person who's done time. For the person who's a sex offender. 
for the person who has passed, for the girl who's pregnant and unwed, for the girl who hates being a prostitute but doesn't know any better. She thinks she does. She thinks she doesn't. For the drug addict that's beating up people for the money to get a fix. And say, look, you know what? Some people are going to go nuts because I told them that God loves you. I mean, died on a cross for you. But Paul's not changing his tune. You don't tear your clothes because you disagree. You tear your clothes because of blasphemy. Listen to that. You tear your clothes for the death of a high priest or a holy man or for blasphemy. In the eyes of these people, it was blasphemy that God loved someone other than them. Isn't that crazy? And that's been that case, by the way, ever since. There's somebody out there that isn't even considered human. It was the slave. It was the foreigner. It was the native. No wonder why Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So you couldn't say that person's not human. I don't have to share with them. They're still a creature. And then you walk around Camden. And you go, that person's a creature. And God says, well, then they qualify. Go preach the gospel to them. Somalian drug runner. Heroin addict, crack dealer, guy that's from Norway that just has the fake, better yet, the fake mohawk. He's still trying to blend in. He's going to wash off all of his tats at the end of the night. Just trying to be liked with a, with a shirt that says, I hate Jesus and an upside down cross. And you're like, why share with that guy? And I'm like, because Jesus loves him. And to be honest, and I know there's some of you in here that would say the same, I would have been that person that you would have said, well, if God were picking and choosing, I would never have made the team. I'm so thankful he knows how to reach to the bottom. Aren't you? Let's finish this chapter and we're only a couple minutes away. They listen to him until this word, and then they raise their voices and said, away with him, he's not fit to live. Verse 23, as they cried, they tore their clothes through dust in the air. Verse 24, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks that he should be examined under scourging. And you might know why. And this is a classic Roman thing to do for somebody who's not Roman. You whip it out, you beat it out of him. So they know why they shouted so much against him. So they bound him with thongs, which means he's there just ready to be beat. He's there. He's been tied up for the, for the whipping. And Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, and he went and told the commander, and he said, Hey, wait a minute. Be careful what you do with this guy. He's actually a Roman. The commander came and he said, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. And the commander said, With a large sum I obtained the citizenship. Paul says, Well, I was born one. Now listen, that's where we'll pick it up next week, the benefits of being such a citizen. But please hear me. I just have a simple challenge for every one of you, me included. In my opinion, to hate someone is to say that they could go to hell and you wouldn't care. And I pray that you wouldn't hate anyone like that. But the bottom line is, I wouldn't, also wouldn't want you to hate everyone. The general mass. You just don't care whether they go to hell or not. 
My challenge is for God to do something crazy, for him to pick who you would think is impossible and stick you in the middle of it. And watch what that is. For some, that might be the homosexual community. For some, that might be the Muslim community. For some, that might be the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. For some, it might just be people in Camden. For some, it might be the drug addict. For some, it might be the people that are in prison. For some, you can figure out who your group is. To be honest, for some, it's just the college students that have been so educated and inoculated against bad doctrine, inoculated by bad doctrine, that the last thing they want to do is hear about Jesus. Well, then they need to see him. And I want to pray tonight for you and for me. First of all, have you accepted that gift of Jesus? The offer's gone out. You're not impossible either, and he's not going to relent until you say yes or until you go nuts saying no. But if you have said yes, you have a testimony. And my prayer is this week you would discover it if you haven't already. And when you discover it, I know you're about to fall in love with the Lord all over again. And then as he gives you that testimony, he's going to give you an audience. And my prayer is he would give you the most impossible of audiences that become the most probable changed. Because the gospel is still the power of salvation to anyone who would believe. So would you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for what you've done in this chapter. How heavy, how serious, how real. I ask your forgiveness, Lord, where you've allowed me or any of us, Lord, to be distracted and try to use things that we think are less offensive but also less effective. Because ineffective things are really not offensive to anyone but you. And Lord, I know that we're not here to try to prove to the world we're nice people and that Christianity is cool. We're here to testify that Jesus used, that God, Father, that you so love the world that you gave Jesus as the gift, as the payment for our sins. That he died on the cross and rose again so that we could be transformed, that we could be free from the penalty, from your wrath, from from all of the filth and muck we've ourselves have obtained and earned and pursued. Oh, but tonight, Lord God, tonight, please, please, transform us. I just want to say yes again to Jesus, not because it resaves me, but just because I want to reaffirm again my love for you, Jesus, and my appreciation for what you did for me at the cross. Father, for what you did by sending your son and watching your son die, I recognize that that's torture. But I recognize you haven't made me a witness so I could sit silent. And I pray for no more mistrials. But Lord, for every one of us that do know you, that have a testimony, this week may we discover it. And in discovering that testimony, Lord, give us that audience. And as you give us that audience, Lord, make us the kind of people that are expecting to see you do things because you're still in the act of delivering people because you did it with us. So Lord, tonight, whoever that impossible group is, I pray this week that as you give us our testimony and put it upon our tongues, that you bring someone from that group or many and create evangelists in this room. Pastors, prophets, teachers, 
raise up people to be about your business, your way. So we again acknowledge Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And we thank you for that. And we say, if you're our Lord, then you lead us, Jesus. Lead us to that which changes the world. Make us world changers, history makers in this room right now. Jesus, in your name. Amen.